surfers. Did you know such a thing existed? Crazy people, cold water surfers. And there was a group of young uh, men who were traveling in the middle of winter to the northern regions of Iceland. Northern regions of Iceland in the middle of winter. Like I said, crazy to surf, to find waters to surf in. And uh, they're, go, they're traveling all throughout the land, and they keep getting, uh, they get little surf in here and there, but there's lots of blizzards, and they're unable to do very much surfing. They're kind of bummed out, and as they're leaving, they're on their way, uh, making their way out, and they're staying at this little emergency cabin along this road, and it's blizzardy out, and it's, it's very dark. You know, there's only four hours of light during the winter in Iceland during a day. And uh, it's very dark outside, and they're outside, and they see the northern lights in all of their glory just uh, beaming down on the water. And one of the guys says, I've got to go out and just try and see if there's some swell in the water so I can hit a wave under the northern lights. And sure enough, he gets uh, his wetsuit on, and he paddles out on his surfboard, and there's just, enough, uh, there's just enough swell in the water for him to surf. And he's surfing and just riding this wave, and the beautiful uh, luminescence of this green sky is shining down on him, and all of his friends on the shore are just hooting and hollering and video recording him and they're so excited and one of them just shouts out this is spiritual because it was such a transcendent moment for all of them but it reminded me of the universal human need for transcendence for connecting to something that is beyond us something greater than us it's also another great reminder is uh the fascination with superheroes And their superhuman powers and their superhuman strength that allows them to transcend the limits of everyday life. There's a universal human longing for transcendence and for glory. So how does a human, how does a person attain transcendence? How does a person attain glory? How do we attain that purpose which is higher that we long to connect to. Have you ever asked that question? I feel like there's just got to be something out there greater than what I'm doing that I could connect to that could really be my higher purpose. Have you ever wrestled with that question? Well, the transfiguration uh, that we just heard about from Mark's gospel uh, is actually a transcendent experience, isn't it? It's a transcendent experience of, it, of its own that says something about glory. But it's a different kind of glory that it shows forth than what we are used to understanding as glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always found the transfiguration narrative a little bit confusing. First of all, why in the world does Jesus take these disciples up to this mountaintop to show them this, right? Why is it there? Why is it in the story? Why is it a part of the story? And what in the world is the deal with Moses and Elijah, long dead as they have been, uh, that are they're right there with Jesus? Why them? What is the meaning of all of it? Well, context, as with everything, is key here. Context is key. And we have to actually go outside of the lectionary passage a little bit. It doesn't give us uh, the context. But if you back up a little bit in Mark's gospel, towards the end of chapter 8, our our lectionary reading is in chapter 9, but towards the end of chapter 8, there's this turning point in Mark's gospel. And this is what Mark tells us. Then Jesus began to teach them, that is his disciples, that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is key. This is key to understanding the transfiguration. Because by virtue of where it's placed, the story of the transfiguration, uh, it's placed in the context of Jesus' teaching on his suffering and death, 
the transfiguration is telling us something about true glory. It's telling us about what glory looks like in God's upside-down kingdom. Now, there's actually a wonderful clue um, in our collect of all places. So if you look at your bulletin insert, um, where the collect is at the top there of the scripture readings, our collect, which is our prayer for the day, um, it says this, O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain. Now, if you think about that, it begs the question, why do they mention the passion, which is the death and suffering of Jesus for the sins of the world, why does it mention the passion and this revealing on the holy mountain? You see, the collect is making this mysterious connection. But Mark's gospel is also making this connection between Jesus' teaching about his suffering that is to come in the future and his revealing his glory to his disciples. There's a, there's a very, very profound connection here. So what we're going to do first is walk through the passage just to uh, refresh our minds and to dig a little bit deeper into it. So if you want to follow along in the passage in your bulletin, we're looking at the passage um, from Mark. And um, it begins like this in uh, verse 2 is where it begins. And it says, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. Well, actually, backing up one verse, uh, which we're not given again, uh, Jesus has said, just said this, Truly I tell you, and he's speaking to his disciples, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So you see, there's a connection right here between Jesus saying, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God come in power, and then he takes them up, up to this mountaintop, where indeed they see that the kingdom of God has come in power in the person and ministry of Jesus. Uh, Mark goes on, he tells us, and he was transfigured before them. Um, That word transfigured comes in the Greek from the word metamorphosis, where we get our word metamorphosis, something really changes about his appearance. And he tells us his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. I find that a kind of a funny description, right? It made me think of, uh, somebody told me about this stuff called Awesome Spray. You get it at the dollar store. It's only a buck for a whole bottle of it. I'm telling you what, I swear by it. You can get any stain out, make any white thing whiter than it was when you bought it. It was awesome. And Mark is saying, not even Awesome Spray could make Jesus' garments glow shinier white then they are glowing, right? He's, he's, he's explaining to us, trying to con- convey the imagery of this radiance. His skin was changed. There was the radiance of glory just, just emanating from him on this mountaintop. Now, this wasn't just like a little gentle, oh, that's cute. Like, they're scared. The disciples are scared, right? They're terrified. In one of the other Gospels, it tells us that they all hit the ground with their faces in the ground, right? And this is, this is serious glory showing forth out of Jesus' person. Now, Mark goes on and tells us, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus. Like they're just having like this small talk conversation all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Elijah and Moses. So what's up with that? What's the deal with Elijah and Moses? There's got to be something significant about these two very prominent Old Testament figures, right? Well, Moses, as a leader of God's people, was associated with the looking forward towards a Messiah, towards an anointed one who would come and faithfully lead God's people into the eternal promised land, right? So there's a connection between Moses and Messiah Jesus. And then Elijah, the Old Testament tells us that Elijah is going to return when God begins to restore all things. Elijah is going to return when God begins to restore all things. So what do you think he's telling us here? Here's what he's telling us by showing us Moses and Elijah appearing. God is starting his renewal of all things, his redemption of the world project, right? 
And at the center of this, of course, is the person of Jesus, glowing with glory. Now, Peter has something to say, as he always does. Peter is the first to respond to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Uh, Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know what the significance of that is? Nothing. Peter's spouting nonsense. He's scared. He doesn't know what to say. So he's nervous and anxious. And he says, oh, this is really fun. Let's make some tents, some shade tents for you guys to shade you from the sun. It's nonsense. You know, like when you're on a roller coaster and you're getting higher and higher to that first peak hill and your heart starts to race a little bit faster and faster and you start wondering if your seatbelt's really buckled and if something's going to malfunction and you see the people on the ground getting smaller and smaller and you're really nervous. And so you say something really stupid to the person beside you like, oh, uh, we should get some corn dogs after this or, uh, wow, this is going to be a really good time, right? You just say something out of being nervous and scared. That's what Peter's doing here, right? It's nonsense. It means nothing. Now, here's something fascinating that happens next mark tells us this then a cloud overshadowed them and from the cloud there came a voice this is my son the beloved listen to him now this this if if you if you are a reader of your old testament which i which i hope you are uh this should this should really uh provoke some uh memories from the old testament up high on a mountain a cloud descending around them. Does this sound familiar? Let me, let me read something uh, to you from Exodus chapter 19 when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, which is where God always reveals things to Moses. Uh, he says this to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that my people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. Wow, I think there's a coincidence there. No, it's not a coincidence. Uh, Mark is telling us that this, what's happening here is a new revelation from God. And what is that revelation? This is my son. Listen to him. My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, right? Now, Moses and Elijah uh, kind of just suddenly fade into back into the heavenly realm, and Jesus is standing there alone in front of the disciples, arraigned in all of his splendor, manifesting the glory of God in human flesh. Now, they had to be thinking, Jesus just started talking to us about his need to go suffer and die, and now he's showing us this brilliant glory and radiance. What does this all mean? Right? What does this all mean? And then there's this funny little detail at the very end of the passage. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Can you imagine trying to keep that secret? <laughs> but why does he tell him that? Why does he say to keep this revelation of my glory a secret until I am raised from the dead? And here's where we start to get somewhere with the meaning of this event. You see, Jesus is concerned that his disciples and others will think that transcendent glory is something that can be achieved apart from and separate from self-giving love and suffering. And he doesn't want us to make that mistake. He doesn't want his disciples out proclaiming his glory until the world sees that his glory exists precisely because he is the God who lays down his life for the world. Uh, One Bible scholar says this very, very profoundly. He says, uh, the investment of the horror and shame of the cross with glory 
makes sense because glory is the manifestation of God's character. The cross as the supreme enactment of God's love is also the supreme revelation of his glory, of who he is. Friends, we cannot, because of our familiarity with the image of a cross, forget how strange an image it is. How strange an image that is to represent a God. There was um, a PBS documentary in 1981 uh, on TV about Christianity. And one of the commentators, not necessarily a Christian, uh, said this. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. The crucifixion is so familiar to us and so moving that it is hard to realize how unusual it is as an image of God. Unusual, indeed, that this God would manifest his glory ultimately in such a self-denying way for you and for me. You see, in the Bible, God's glory is ultimately always connected to his humility, to his willingness to take human flesh and die on our behalf for the sins of the world. God's glory in the Bible is always God's self-giving love. God's glory is not just to exalt himself. God's glory works in such a way that he exalts humanity and gives us the opportunity to become who we were meant to be by believing in his son and following him. And that's the lesson. You can be sure that Peter, James, and John would eventually learn after they had seen not just Jesus on the mountaintop in all of his glory, but before they, when they saw his glory as he hung on the cross, dying for their sins. I think probably only then it really sank in for them. So what does it mean for us um, who are asking, what's my higher purpose? How do I achieve transcendence or glory or connect with something that is greater and beyond? Let's go back to the collect for a minute because, again, it's so helpful here. Uh, Second half of the collect says this. Grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross. You see, that was the purpose, right? Jesus' radiant countenance, Peter, James, and John behold it, and he knew that it would end up giving them strength to bear their crosses as they endured martyrdom eventually as well. Friends, when we gaze at the glory of Jesus on the cross, we ourselves will be strengthened to pursue our higher purpose, which is this, giving ourselves away to God and to others. Because when you see that kind of love on display, when, when it really means something to you, when it's not just an all-too-familiar image that you see on necklaces and, and jewelry, you'll say this, no one has ever loved me like that. No one could ever love me like that. No one else has hung painfully on a cross for me to forgive my sins and make me whole again. If that really has meaning to you, that's what you'll say. And the only proper response to that image will be, how can I give myself up to this God who would do this? For me. See, here's the thing. If your, your desire for transcendence or glory or purpose in this life is not connected to God, 
You'll have to try to find it in things that will not never ultimately satisfy. In fact, what will happen is your pursuit for transcendence will leave you deflated of true joy because you'll be on a pleasure treadmill, just spinning the wheel, trying to find meaning and purpose apart from God. Um, the successful actor um, and comedian Jim Carrey, remember him from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, very successful um, comedian and actor, he said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Wow. But if you surrender your desire for glory, for, tra- to, for transcendence, to Jesus Christ, your quest for a higher purpose in life won't involve just traveling the world, trying to accomplish things, accumulating things, or trying to make a name for yourself in the world. But it'll be found simply in living more deeply into the relationships, the immediate relationships around you. It could simply look like being less distracted and more present to your family. It could look like making a financial sacrifice so that someone else could be fed. It could look like asking, what are the jobs around the church that no one else wants to do that I could volunteer for to bless other people? Right? We don't think of those sort of things as associated with glory. But our Lord changes that mentality. It could look like uh, making a defined time commitment to prayer and to study and to worship to show that that actually means something and has transformed your life from the inside out. It could look like joining a Bible study or some kind of a community group, even if you really don't like people all that much, right? It could look like any of these things. It could look like spending time with someone who looks a lot different, dresses a lot different, believes differently than you. Friends, this is where true glory is found. In these little things, don't underestimate how small decisions like this can draw you closer to the heart of God. Because here's the thing. That's what this is about. Drawing close to the heart of God. This is not about coming up with another checklist, honey-do list for God. It's not about that. It's about seeking to be more deeply united to Jesus in his self-giving love. Because it's in those moments, it's in those movements of self-giving that you will experience a deep and quiet joy with the God whose very presence enables you to do those things. Uh, The author of Hebrews in the New Testament wrote this, Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy set before him endured the cross disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of glory. You see, he has to be our vision, our ultimate goal. You have to want God for God, not for his blessings, not for his ability to provide for you, not for any other reason, but to want him, to want deeper union with him, because that is what he wants with you. This is such a perfect, this transfiguration story is such a perfect way to wrap up um, Epiphany, a season where we have focused on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it points us towards Lent, which we begin this week, where we begin to ask God again on an annual basis, how does the revelation of Jesus Christ point me closer to my Heavenly Father and further away from serving myself? Right? That is the question we should be asking through Lent. How does the revelation of His glory Lead me deeper to the Father's heart and further away from myself.
Because here's the thing, when you look at Jesus, we're all after the fullness of humanity. We're all after trying to live into the fullness of who we are as humans, right? Now, here's the thing. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at the most fulfilled human being ever who was perfectly connected to his higher purpose. But when you look at him, he's, he's not walking down a red carpet amidst photographers. He's not feasting with the rich and famous. He's walking around with no home, no place to lay his head, healing, loving, giving himself, dying for the world. He's giving up, giving away his own life so that everyone else can live. That was his purpose. And as we are united to him, it becomes ours too. Let us pray. Lord God of glory and splendor, who shone your glory on that mountaintop. We know that Peter, James, and John would go on to give their lives because they were sustained by that vision of your glory and of your self-giving love. That you would submit yourself to the degradation of the cross on our behalf is proof to us, Lord, that you love us and accept us beyond anything that we can do for ourselves. So enable us to behold this very unusual vision of the all-powerful and glorious God so that we too could join you in laying down our lives for others. In Jesus' name, amen.